Hello everyone, it's July 4th, 2023. This week we're going to Mars to revisit the MOXIE experiment on Perseverance. It's doing some cool stuff. And we also have news from Ingenuity, the little Martian helicopter that was out of range, but now we got it back. Things are looking up on Mars, so let's get the show up and lift off. In me through the tower, welcome to episode 416 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. Uh, and no Dennis. He's seeing a friend off, I believe. Yeah, he had, he had like a lot, a lot of things going. I think he's like traveling to that later today. I don't know. <laughs> he, just, he listed a lot of things he was doing. I was like, holy crap, I'm glad I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very busy. So one thing that we were going to maybe cover, but ended up not actually making an official topic out of was a Vega C uh, flight delay. Yeah, so I was up with that. I haven't read much about it, but basically it looks like it was a static fire test of a Zephyro 40, which is uh, the second stage. There's not much information on exactly what the problem is, although one thing that is pointed out is that it is not due to the new throat insert, which had to be retrofitted into uh, that particular engine. Because I think we talked about this a while ago. I don't remember what the context was, but basically, if you recall, there was an issue where the the throat diameter of that particular engine was, I think, too large. And so they needed to fix that. And so they made this throat insert, which I believe was what being manufactured in Ukraine. I might be getting this wrong. And I think that uh, the company, the Ukrainian company, which provided that insert, wasn't they were not able to do so. So some other company was contracted. The Ukrainian company was kind of upset about that. This delay is not due to that. So just to be clear about that. Yeah. And so the only information as to the cause of this delay is due to a, uh, quote, reduction in the overall pressure performance of of the motor. Right. During during a static test, right? Right. Yeah. So a second stage static fire and an underperformance. So hopefully they'll get that fixed. Here we go. Space News has got a better. They say um, Avio, the Italian company that's a prime contractor for Vega, said that um, one of their Z40 motors experienced an anomaly during a test. It was part of an effort to requalify the motor after the failure in December. The original failure was due to... Um, like a novel carbon carbon like nozzle throat material um, and mm. so they replaced that or no 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 the carbon carbon is a new one so they had the nozzle throat that eroded and i think honestly i think the other one was carbon carbon as well and then this is requalifying a new supplier of this throat and they're like trying to qualify it and that in, in the requalification test it performed it ex as expected but there was some other issue, some other part failed or partially failed that caused a reduction of pressure. Probably not the same kind of, of scale of issue as the one that caused the complete failure in December, but enough to be worrying, right? Like if, if, you, if yeah. you're getting anomalies, that's... that's during a test, like, let's go track down those anomalies before we do anything. So maybe this is just an anomaly that would have shown up either way, because it has nothing to do with that throat insert. Yeah. And so yeah. that's exactly why they test to find out, you know, these things. So maybe they need to do a little tweaking on that uh, Zephyro 40. Yeah, fair enough. Cool. All right. Well, that's the state of Vega C. I guess we should move on to uh, maybe Mars. Yeah. Yeah. 
updates from Mars. So Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, or MOXIE. So this is kind of cool. Um, uh, when I heard about this, I was kind of like, I don't know, this is, I don't know, this is just one of those things that I that I think is really just like makes me happy. I don't know yeah. <laughs> like how to put it. Mox, MOXIE in general, right? Yeah. So uh, MOXIE is on Perseverance um, up on Mars. And uh, it's sort of like this proof of concept for um, converting carbon dioxide in the Martian atmosphere to oxygen, primarily that humans can breathe, but also, you know, maybe that rocket engines could breathe if we need to. This is sort of like, uh, if you've watched For All Mankind, this is kind of like one of the things that happens at Mars is they are doing um, in situ resource utilization, um, converting CO2 to oxygen. So the, like requirement for moxie to be a payload uh that was like accepted by nasa and like ready to go was they wanted to see the ability to produce six grams of oxygen per hour and so they had been doing that pretty successfully um i think they fired up moxie like seven times uh over uh 2022 i believe is the number for that one and so they they kind of been like cranking along and they said, you know what, let's start pushing this and see how much oxygen we can get out of Moxie. And so what they did was they pushed it really, really hard. This might be the hardest that it can go. And they were able to achieve double the production um, than their previous record. Um, so I think it's slightly over 12 grams of O2 per hour. Um, and not only did they double their previous record, but they actually held that production level for 58 minutes. And what's really cool about this is like, you know, whenever you're pushing something beyond it's like rated capacity or like it's known stable capacity, there are always like all these different things that can fail. But in this case, I, I believe what was most dangerous was basically coking, um, which is something that you have to worry about um, with all sorts of combustion engines. Um, but basically, when they're converting carbon dioxide to oxygen, um, they're doing some sort of electrolysis reaction. And um, the major byproduct is carbon monoxide. Um, carbon monoxide is definitely something you don't want in your oxygen supply, but it's really nice as a byproduct. Um, you know, it's, if it's electrolysis, I believe, you know, it's going to be produced on one side of your engine or of your, your converter. And then the oxygen is going to be separated from, at least that's how it works in like water electrolysis. So like as a byproduct, assuming you don't have to worry about filtering it out, it's a really good byproduct because it's a gas, right? Like you can just dump it back out into the atmosphere and you don't have to worry about seeing it ever again, um, at least on these sort of scales. Um, but there's also another byproduct, which is solid carbon. And like solid carbon uh, is not a gas and it like it can gum up the inside of, of your machine. And so I don't know how many moving parts there are. I, I kind of doubt that there's much uh like mechanical danger here it's just like you're flowing uh you're you're sucking in air on one side and spitting out oxygen on the other and like you don't want the interior of your machine coated in carbon um like it's it's just going to sit there and um take up all the space uh, that you really want your electrolysis equipment to be interfacing with the air so by 
pushing the production levels up this high, they they were actually risking uh, what they described as minor damage uh, just from this uh, this solid carbon getting deposited all over the inside of their machine. Then there was also a little bit of news with regard to Ingenuity. Um, do you remember when we last heard from Ingenuity, David? No, I don't actually. <laughs> How long <laughs> okay. ago has that been? <laughs> yeah, three, three months ago. Oh, um, wow. And so we lost contact with it. And like, I don't know if anybody saw some of the headlines, but it was just like really dramatic uh, three months ago. And then again, uh, just now we just reestablished contact. And like the headlines sound really dramatic. Like, oh, no, we we lost contact with uh, the the Ingenuity helicopter. It's gone. We can't. It's like, well, no, no, we we knew this was going to happen. So what happened was they decided to go land Ingenuity out of a direct line of sight with uh, with the rover. like. Perseverance acts as a base station. Uh, Ingenuity talks to Perseverance and Perseverance relays um, that data home. And so they decided to go land on the far side of a ridge that uh, that Perseverance was going to go drive over. And so while they're flying over there, they're getting all of this camera data um, during the flight. But then because they're flying over the ridge, when the helicopter lands, it drops out of sight behind the hill and so they knew they were going to lose contact on descent and that's exactly what happened uh this was the the 52nd flight of ingenuity and today perseverance uh crested that hill and regained line of sight it wasn't today it was actually june 28th uh we're currently recording this on june second or july 2nd uh sunday and so like this week they they got over the hill and oh there's there's a helicopter uh, there, there's a little drone, you know, good drone, pat on the head. Uh, we re- actually regain contact and uh, we're ready to fly Ingenuity again. So exciting. Like if you're talking about feel good stories, uh, especially feel good stories on Mars, like you can't get better than these two right now. <laughs> One other thing that, that this kind of reminded me of, although it's not Mars related, um, but it is, I guess, uh, sort of chemistry related is, um, and this is not in the notes at all, but um, I'd read, uh, if I can find the headline from space.com, uh, NASA just recycled 98% of all astronaut pee and sweat <laughs> on ISS. <laughs> for what period of time? Well, I think it's just per, it's not a period of time. I think it's just per volume so like if you have like like if you have an x amount of p and then you go to recycle it you get like 98 percent of the water back from that so so an instantaneous capacity like in yeah in so theory chris in the chat says per units per p chris please submit that as a as a title per unit yeah <laughs> um but yeah so so like you're saying like in theory this thing can run at what was it 97 percent efficiency they or might not run it yeah. 98. Okay. They might not run it at 98 always, but they, they can and have run it at 98% efficiency for some, you know, Mm -hmm. for some amount of recycled pee. Yeah. And then the remaining 2% is what they call brine, you know, which is, I guess, a good as, is as good a word as any. I mean, it's water with a lot of salt in it, you know? Yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, this is due to something called the BPA, uh, not the plastic, the brine (laughs) processor assembly, which is just Mm -hmm. one little component that apparently was added on to the overall wastewater filtration system and uh, it bumps it up from 93 or 94% which is what it was previously wow. so 94 to 98 is huge right like 50 yeah. 54 to 58 is nothing but when you're getting that close to 100% like those right? you yeah. know seemingly marginal numbers really represent a, a lot of 
water that is no longer pee. Yeah. <laughs> I think things like this that involve, you know, creating more oxygen, either for people or for rockets, and then recycling water, they're all important. Like if you're ever going mm -hmm. to, you know, go anywhere and stay out there in the solar system. So that's kind of why I get excited about stuff like this, you know, just because it's uh, nice to see in situ resource utilization and recycling, I guess is the way it gets you, you closer to your Rosinante. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for anyone who watches The Expanse, they'll know that or read the books. Basically, any of the sci-fi ships that have like an indefinite dwell time outside mm. of a habitated planet. It's all about efficiency. So let's do three short and sweets. And David, what is the first one? <laughs> okay. And me, what's the first one? Uh, so Virgin Galactic completes first fully commercial flight. While the company did pull in a little cash for research payloads on earlier flights, Spaceship 2's flight Galactic 01 on June 29th was the first for Virgin Galactic in that its capacity was entirely dedicated to a paying customer. The Italian Air Force and Italy's National Research Council flew three researchers and 13 experiments on this suborbital flight, studying biomedical science, fluid mechanics, and microgravity combustion, among other subjects. Virgin has scheduled Galactic 02 for sometime in August and is still holding to their prediction of monthly flights from here on out. All right, next up, the Euclid Telescope prepares for launch. ESA's latest mission is a 1.2 meter space telescope headed out to L2 aboard a Falcon 9. With visible and near-infrared instruments, the vehicle is intended to map dark matter and study the nature of dark energy. Euclid was one of the vehicles affected by Russia pulling their Soyuz vehicles from French Guiana. Fortunately, no hardware changes were required to switch to Falcon 9, though the cost impact has not been disclosed. And finally, Dream Chaser prepares for launch. Final integration and testing has begun on the first cargo Dream Chaser space plane, and it is scheduled for thermal vacuum testing at Neil Armstrong Test Facility in Ohio in a month or two. It will be launched on the second ever Vulcan Centaur sometime between December and February, though a minor structural change to the selected Centaur may drive the timing of the launch. Questions, comments, and corrections, and we have a correction for Dennis, who's not here. So, uh, <laughs> Ben, this is your correction. It's, it's <laughs> I'm making I mean, this I your fault. He he wrote it, he wrote it in the show notes. So my plan was to just read it verbatim. So uh, the title is Uncle Willie and my failed astronomying. Parentheses, a prepared message from Dennis Just. <laughs> uh, so the Sun Earth L2 is 1.5 million kilometers from the Earth, not 150 million kilometers. Uh, the latter is the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So now you won't get lost if you try to head to L2 by yourself, says Uncle Willie. Uh, the CMB was discovered at Bell Labs in the 1960s, not the 1930s. Uh, as Dennis said, and Dennis says that he also conflated the CMB's discovery with the 1930 discovery, also at Bell Labs, of the first celestial radio source, which happens to be the Milky Way Center. And uh, Dennis would like to say thank you to Uncle Willie. All right, moving on then to this week in space flight history, we have five winners. We have Uncle Willie, Psy Kyle, Asukar, the Greek, and Hydrak, and they all get bonus points because they all, I think they all got the uh, essence of the clue. So the clue is the mass hasn't changed, but now it's too heavy. And I thought this was a 
clever clue. This is what I'm proud of. So this has to do with the launch of MERB or the Opportunity rover, and that launched aboard a Delta II Heavy. So the Opportunity rover, and I'm just going to like really cover the launch. There was a previous episode, I think it was quite a while ago, where we covered the landing of Opportunity, and I didn't want to, you know, just like repeat a bunch of stuff. So um, this will just be a quick summary of the launch and launch-related things. So Opportunity has the same mass as Spirit, right? So that mass isn't any different, and that's the first part of the clue. The rovers themselves weigh 180 kilograms, the total mass of the landing system. So this is the parachute, the capsule, the back shell, the heat shield, the airbag system, and all that. Uh, That weighed 1,062 kilograms. Uh, So it's the same for both of them, but they were launched on two different rockets. Uh, Spirit was launched on a Delta II, uh, specifically the 7925-95, and I'll go into exactly what that means. But Oppie launched on the same rocket, but it was the heavy version. So the joke or the pun is that the mass of the rovers hasn't changed, but now it's too heavy, as in the Delta II heavy. I feel like it you know, works on both levels, which to me is a good pun. So that's why I like it. So Spirit was a Delta II, but Oppie was a too heavy, despite the mass not having changed. So, okay, so let's break down the Delta II heavy. I just kind of want to talk about the nomenclature of the Delta II, because I don't know if we ever have before. But so I said it was a 7925-95. That's the non-heavy version. And then you just add an H and that makes it heavy. So the first digit seven is the 7000 series Delta rocket. I mean, there's not much to say there. And again, I don't want to go into a huge amount of detail about the Delta, but that's what the seven designates or that first digit. The nine, that indicates nine boosters. And I didn't realize that the Delta II's apparently normally do launch with all nine boosters. And so that means if you look at the rocket, it just has boosters wrapped all the way around. And you can do as few as like, you know, one, two, or three, but nine is actually usually what launches. And with this configuration, there are six that are ignited on launch. And then there are three more that are actually more closer to vacuum optimized. And so those don't light up until quite a bit later. Yeah, they're staggered. Yeah, staggered. And uh, with the vacuum optimized nozzles or, you know, I guess like upper atmosphere optimized nozzles. It's, It's one of those little things that like you wouldn't notice unless you knew to look for it. And then once you know it, every like Delta II heavy launch that you see, I mean, now in video, because it's been retired, <laughs> but like when you, when you see it, you're just like, oh yeah, like I, I can totally see the different nozzles and like, oh, like now I know a little bit about like what way the rocket is facing relative to me. Like it's, it's a good little mm-hmm. detail to, I'll see if I can remember to include some photos uh, in the show notes, because it is a really good detail. The detail that I noticed when looking at a diagram was just that the nozzles on the vacuum optimized ones are noticeably larger. That's the mm-hmm. big difference. And all yeah. of the nozzles are sort of canted a little bit outward at 10 degrees. But the big ones look like they're canted out even farther just because the, yeah. the nozzle's so chunky. Right. <laughs> yeah. So that's the second digit in the name. The third digit, which in this case is a two, that indicates an AJ10 second stage. So that's the second stage, which very often is the last stage. But in this case, that's not the case um, because there is a five. uh, That is the fourth digit, right? So seven, nine, two, five. And the five indicates a star 48B solid motor PAM or a payload assist module. So this is just a solid 
rocket motor um, that in this case is necessary to give it that extra little bit of, you know, like oomph to get it to Mars. And then if it's a heavy variant, there is an H. And what does that H mean? Uh, the H means that those nine boosters are not the normal Gem 40s, which are, and we've talked about these, I believe, before, which are, just to give you some idea, uh, 145,000 pounds of thrust for 62 seconds. That's how long they burn. But instead, they are the Gem 46s, which... Uh, deliver 199,000 pounds of thrust for 76 seconds. So that's the key difference between the rocket for Spirit and the one for Opportunity. So you get that much of a difference. Um, and according to the ULA Payload Planner's Guide, which is a pretty cool document, this yields about 20% greater performance. So that's a pretty significant difference there. Now, the last part in the name, right, I said dash 9.5. The 9.5 indicates a 9.5 meter diameter fairing. Uh, you can get a 10 meter one, but that was not necessary. So this could have launched on an Atlas V or Delta IV, but they were deemed too new, quote unquote. Uh, these are launch vehicles that weren't really uh, used for an actual mission until 2004 and 2005. So, you know, this launch was a little bit too early. So, yeah, just go with a Delta II. And the heavy version or the heavy variant was the, for this launch was the first time that they had ever uh, done that heavy launch variant. Uh, so normally it was just a Delta II and, you know, the various uh, versions of that depending on the payload fairing and so forth. But to put those Gem 46 boosters on, uh, yeah, this was the first time that that had ever been done. So the question, why do you need a heavier lift launch vehicle for the Opportunity rover and not Spirit? And uh, as you might have guessed, this has to do with uh, when it was launched. So for any launch from Earth to Mars, you have about a roughly, I guess, two-month launch window about every two years or two and a half years, something like that. The launch window, just uh, for reference, uh, the very first launch attempt for Spirit was on June 8th, and the very last for Oppie was on July 15th. So that's like your whole window there. And so I'm assuming that June 8th was the optimal time to launch, although I'm actually not sure about that. Maybe it was a little bit before because you just want to have as many opportunities as possible. And if the vehicle is capable of a suboptimal uh, transfer, then you know, why not take it because you might need to reset, which they did, or at least for opportunity. I'm not sure about spirit. So since opportunity uh, launched later on, you needed a little bit more Delta V. And so that's why a Delta II Heavy was used. So the first launch attempt for opportunity was on June 28th, but that was delayed due to range safety, uh, high winds, uh, cork insulation, which was peeling off of the LOX tank during loading, and a battery replacement. So I'll take those one by one. So the cork insulation, this is interesting, that was actually something that was added to insulate the LOX tank uh, because of the faster than normal ascent profile, since this is, you know, a fully loaded uh, heavy version rocket. And I assume that Spirit did not have this, so that's one difference right there, which I thought, I don't know, I've never thought about that, that you might have to insulate your LOX tank just because of uh, heating. Pretty weird. But that actually kept on coming off and kind of like, you know, delaminating. Uh, so uh, that caused some delays. Um, another delay was a battery replacement. And guess what? This was for the flight termination system. I was going to say. So, <laughs> so apparently this is a thing. So this kind of reminds me of SLS, uh, a delay of a you know week or two. And yeah, sure enough, they have to go in there. And I don't know how hard it was to replace the battery on this. I'm assuming it was easier. So for each of the launch days, uh, each launch opportunity, there's actually two of them per day. So basically just enough time to reset and then, you know, like make a second attempt. Uh, 
why not do it like that? Makes sense. Now on the actual launch day, which like I said, was on July 7th, that was actually the second attempt. The first attempt was halted due to a sluggish fill-in drain valve. So there was a valve problem uh, that needed to be fixed, but then they were able to launch on the second attempt of that day on July 7th. I had read uh, one comment made, I believe, by uh, somebody at NASA was just that it was a little bit of a Murphy's Law situation where everything that could go wrong did, but you know they eventually were able to launch. So yeah, that all worked out. Um, and this uh, vehicle launched from Slick 17B at Kennedy Space Center. And uh, apparently this is the only pad that can accommodate a Delta II Heavy. So it cannot be launched from any other pad there, and it cannot be launched from Vandenberg. For that, you can just do a regular Delta II, but not the Heavy, which uh, is interesting because we're just talking about well, I guess, you know, I mean, those boosters, there are some dimensional differences. They're uh, slightly larger in diameter. And I guess there's other, you know, more technical reasons why. But it doesn't seem like that big of a difference. But apparently you really can only launch from this one pad if you're going to do a Delta II Heavy. But yeah, successful launch. And then Oppie touched down on Mars on January 25th, 2004. So the following year. And that was just uh, 21 days after Spirit had landed. So about the same difference in landing date as launch date. But yeah, so that was the launch of Oppy. And if you want to know more about the landing, you can go to episode 244, search way back in the archives. It's in there. I got a link in the show notes as well. Or just visit the link in the show notes. Easier still. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that is your This Week in Spaceflight History. And since uh, Dennis is not here to pose the question, I will. Uh, next week's date range is the 18th through the 24th of July. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? Yeah. So next week uh, in 2017, the clue is... Do you ever feel like a sample bag drifting through the wind wanting to sue again? Okay. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to sing it. So if you think you have a guess as to what this clue is in reference to, send us an email at info at theorbitalmechanics.com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon and use the hashtag thisweeksf and good luck. And right now, uh, we only check federated toots on bots in space, or I don't know how to say this, bots in dot, dot space, space and yeah. spacey dot space. But you can always mention at Orbital Podcast at botsin.space or join our Discord and type slash TWSF to hand your guest directly to our Tombot. All right, moving on to the upcoming spaceflight events. We just have two launches. And thank you to Launch Library 2, where we start our research each week. And Ben, what is the first launch? The first of the two Falcon 9s, it looks like. Yep. Uh, so first up is Starlink Group 513. As was previously spoilered, this is flying on a Falcon 9 Block 5. Um, and this one's flying out of Vandenberg, um, Space, Comp Space Launch Complex 4E. And Starlink is going to be flying. Uh, it's got a little bit of a window, but the window opens up on July 7th at 19.02 hours UTC and continues down to 20.45 hours UTC. The next one, which will be on July 9th, two days later, is launching Starlink Group 6.5. That's also launching on a Falcon 9 Block 5. This one, the launch window, again, beginning on July 9th, goes from 07.15 UTC to 11.46 UTC. And that's launching from Slick 40 at the Cape. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. Which means it's time to do over the show. And we would like to thank Ron Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information, 
information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. And we record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific or 12 p.m. Eastern Time. And thank you so much to Mike, Colin, Chris, or a.k.a. Star Garfield, the Greek, Asukar, and Astro for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show, please tell a friend, or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can also visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links. And get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about, or you can skip all that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everyone.